If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We're continuing our series to Luke, and we begin looking at Luke chapter 13, verse 10 this morning. Luke says that now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches." And again he said to them, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour." until it was all leavened. God bless the reading of His Word. Right in the middle of this passage, we find Jesus asking this question, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? How shall I describe God's kingdom? And it's that that question, that emphasis that brings together the story of healing that we have at the beginning and the two brief parables that follow. It is this emphasis on the kingdom of God. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom. But that kingdom, especially here, is not what people were expecting. It's not even what people wanted it to be like. And so Jesus wants to be clear in his explanation of what he just did. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what you should expect. If you want to be part of God's kingdom, then you need to understand what I am doing, what God is doing through me. And today we can very easily find ourselves in in a very similar situation Not perhaps as we might hope to be, like the crowds rejoicing at what God has done, but like the leader of the synagogue who is frustrated, who is angry, out of a right motive wanting to honor God, but nevertheless missing that God is at work. Because we've misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. We've misunderstood what Jesus is seeking to accomplish, what effect that should have for our lives. So this morning, we again want to understand what is Jesus doing here and how has he interpreted what he is doing? How has he explained why he did what he did and how that is the larger part of the kingdom of God? This morning, what we seek to do is understand the marks of God's kingdom. And the first thing that we see, the first thing that we see is that God's kingdom is marked by compassion. Here we see the compassion of the kingdom. The compassion of the kingdom. Get this scene clear in your mind. 
Jesus stands up to teach at a local synagogue. It is full of pious Israelites. It's also full of religious leaders. And Jesus is apparently in the middle of his teaching when he spots this woman who was sitting in the back where where women were permitted only to sit, who was all bent over in an obvious discomfort. Now I want you to stop and think about what life would have been like for that woman, especially in the first century. Really, all this week as I was preparing uh, and thinking about this, there was one lady from uh, my past who kept coming to my mind. Her name was Liz Swanson, and when I was younger, she attended the church that Melinda and I grew up at, and it was obvious that she had some health problems, but they looked relatively minor to me when I was 8, 9, and 10. But I left that church and then returned later when I was in high school, and it was obvious that her problems were not light. They were serious. In fact, she had severe rheumatoid arthritis, and she was also hunched over, much like the woman in this story. She was not only hunched over, but her hands and her feet were also drawn up so that when you saw her, she would look at you like this, from behind a hunched back and with hands that could barely grip and turn the pages of her Bible and carry her purse. What made it worse for Miss Swanson was the difficulties that her husband also had with his health and the difficulties that their son had with his mental disabilities. She was the caregiver for both, even in her condition. I want you to think about this. Liz Swanson had every reason not to come to church. She had at least three built-in excuses why no one would blame her for not being there. Her, Her husband's health, her son's problems, and her own physical disability. And yet... And yet it was odd if you didn't see her at church. She was committed to God and to his people and loved to sing his praises, loved to hear his word even in the midst of pain just sitting there for the hour that it was for the service to commence. And I I see her very much in the woman in this text. In my mind, it is nothing less than a mark of her sincere piety that despite her evident pain, despite her difficulty, she is there at the synagogue, not commanded in the law. You understand, if you didn't go to the synagogue, you were breaking no command from God. The synagogue was above and beyond what God called you to do. And there she is, eager to hear teaching from God's word. I think that there is an example there for all of us to consider, but that's not the focus of the passage. She's not the focus of the text. Christ is the focus of the text, specifically the compassion that that he shows this woman and how it is indicative of the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus' compassion is most clearly seen in the initiative that he takes to remedy this woman's problems. This woman did not come and yell, Jesus, can you see me back here? Do you see my affliction? Do you see my great need? She did not make her way forward. She wasn't there for that. She was simply there to sing the great psalms of the Old Testament, to hear the offering of prayers, and to experience the teaching of the Scriptures. Yet Jesus sees her in her condition. 
Jesus spots her and the difficulty that she is in. And it seems like in the middle of whatever sermon he's given, he stops. Perhaps even comes out from behind the desk at which you would have sat to teach and calls her forward. He calls her out of the crowd to himself. And unlike many passages that we've even seen in Luke, you'll notice here there's no mention of her faith. There's no mention of her seeking out Jesus. It doesn't mean that she didn't do those things, that she was, in fact, I've just argued that by virtue of the fact that she's there in the midst of this pain, it demonstrates she has faith in God. But my point is that there is, there is no flashing lights of her being desperate for this healing. Instead, Jesus simply looks at her in her need, has compassion on her, touches her, and grants her healing. Now that's significant because when we read the New Testament, we see healings like this. We should not only see them as historical events. These aren't made up stories. These really happened. There was a woman who was bent over for 18 years and Jesus healed her. But these are more than just healings. When, when Jesus heals people, he does so pointing to a greater work that God also wants to do, a greater healing, namely the healing of our sin-sick souls. And here we see a wonderful illustration of the nature of that salvation, of that healing that he gives. It is driven by the compassion of God in Christ and is not dependent upon us or what we do, even in seeking it out. As those that are born sinners, we have a disabling spiritual problem. We are not only enemies of God, but we are also not seeking after God. The Bible is clear that we are, as it were, spiritual zombies, not going after the one who can not only give us relief, but the one who has made us for himself. We might be weighed down and burdened, seeking relief from the consequences of our sins. But left to ourselves, we're not seeking that relief from God. And yet God is gracious to us. He is compassionate towards us. And though we do not seek after Him, He seeks after us. He overcomes our inability in coming to Him and comes for us. The Bible calls this election. It is God's gracious choosing to call us to himself for salvation. John the apostle is clear that we only love God. We only respond to the gospel treasuring Christ because God first loved us. We love God. We love one another because God first loved us. It is this movement of compassion that God has towards us that is indicative of the kingdom. That's how the kingdom goes forward. It is driven by the compassion of God in Christ. And when he calls us to himself, he, when he does that, when he grants us salvation, when he shows compassion, he also demonstrates the conquest of the kingdom. He reveals the conquest of the kingdom. Think about the, the detailed way in which Luke describes this this woman here. He doesn't say just that she was afflicted for many years. He says 18 years. That's specific. He also says that her physical condition made it so that she could not fully straighten herself up. Again, more specificity. Now, sometimes we have that specificity, but other times we don't have it in the Gospels. But remember what Luke tells us from the very beginning. He is seeking to be a good historian and putting together his his gospel for Theophilus, he says, I have, I have studied these things out. I have researched. I have talked 
to the people that were there. Luke not only goes after eyewitnesses, but very often I think there's evidence that he goes and finds the very people that he's writing about and interviews them personally. He, he, he gets it directly from the horse's mouth, as it were, and doesn't just rely on reliable witnesses. It wouldn't surprise me if Luke actually went and found this woman and talked to her. So that's the first thing. Remember, Luke's a good historian. But second, remember, Luke's also a doctor. And doctors like to ask questions, specific questions. How long have you had this condition? How long have you been in pain, right? What is the extent of the pain? On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain, right? So, so, so he, you can imagine him looking at this woman who was, who was walking around now in better health, standing straight up and said, so how long had you been, had you had that problem? Oh, it was about 18 years, I think. And, and could you stand up at, at all? No, I, I couldn't write myself completely up. I can only go this far. And Luke's going, okay, okay, he's writing this down. And in his mind, he's thinking about lots of different things as a doctor. He's thinking about the, the, the things that medicine would have revealed to him about how the body works and about what her condition would have been. But Luke's not just a historian. He's not just a doctor. He's also a disciple of Christ. So even as a man of science, as a man who delighted in the physicality of God's creation, he also knew that was not the limits of God's creation. He would have known what Shakespeare wrote so eloquently in Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. He knows that not every physical affliction has a physical cause. And so was this woman like Job, one who was specifically afflicted because of her faith? Well, we don't know. We don't know why, but what we do know is that there was a spiritual cause for her ailment. We're told very clearly that Satan himself had sent this disabling spirit that had left her bent over and unable to stand erect. Now, why is this important for us to understand? Well, first, it's not important so that we can be seeking out and trying to discern demonic activity in every bump, scrape, and cough that we go through. Okay, there's a right there. Okay, thank you. That was good. Special effects for the sermon. You know, when I was growing up, uh, there was uh, a certain kind of tract that this church stocked, and a uh, very popular kind of tract among independent Baptist uh, churches. And the reason why I like those tracks, I would actually spend money, uh, allowance money, buying those tracks up because, number one, they were well illustrated and I was really into drawing at the time. Um, and they told compelling stories. Uh, they worked really hard at finding real life events or creating stories that, that had the ethos of real life to convey the truths that they were seeking to convey through these tracks, truths of the Bible. The problem was, as I got older and looked back on those tracks, thought about what they were teaching, the theology was actually wonky. Yeah, that's a, that's a theological term, okay? It means does not fit with the Bible, messed up, okay? And, and one of the things that they had as a conviction throughout many of these tracks is that basically everything bad that was happening was the result of, of satanic or demonic activity. So, so, so you would have illustrated a, a demon literally pinching the heels of a baby at church crying, causing distractions for those around. You would have a guy, you know, happily going to, to work down the street and a demon whispering in his ear, hoping that he will turn and look at this beautiful woman and, and he'll stumble in lustful thoughts after her. So anything going on was the result of demonic activity. Now, number one, that's a problem because the Bible says the greatest source of your problems is your heart. 
And if you're at all in a community group and have not got that from our current study, you need to go back from the beginning and start reading it again, all right? Uh, the, temp- the external temptations are only driven by what is inside our heart. So that, that was the first problem. But the second problem is the Bible never attributes that level of uh, nitty-gritty, picky to demonic activity. In fact, they, they, they say it's there, it's real, but here's the thing. That's not where our focus should be. It should not be our obsession. Luke is pointing out the reality that this woman's, that woman's physical problems was the result of spiritual attack for this reason, that we might see Jesus' authority over it. He wants us to understand that Jesus' authority is not derived simply because he is the creator of our bodies, but because he's also the savior of our souls. See, the word that he uses here, it's interesting, when he talks about being freed from her disability, the word that is in Jesus' mouth is not a word that is typically used for healing. It's a, it's a word from the language of salvation. It's used in reference to one who was released from a debt or set loose from prison. It is used to describe the redemptive work in Jesus and setting us free from our sins. So Jesus is making clear to those around, to this woman, what will later be said in verse 16, that in healing her, Jesus is setting her free from Satan's afflictions. Jesus is releasing her, saving her from her sins. Therefore, as Jesus exercised his authority in healing this woman, he is displaying the victory, the conquest of God's kingdom over sin and Satan. He is demonstrating the victory that comes to those who put their faith in him. So as we sit here today, yes, absolutely, Christ has power over your physical infirmities. But the vast weight of emphasis throughout the New Testament is that rejoice even more that Christ has authority over your spiritual infirmities. Rejoice even more that Christ can set you free from bondage to Satan, free from bondage to your own sin, that you can be made right with God and actually grow in personal holiness before God. That is where the weight of rejoicing is. So as we sit here today, we take confidence, we take encouragement that because of the conquest nature, the victorious nature of the kingdom, there is no power, there is no force, there is no guilt, there is no past, there is no sin in your life that can keep you from experiencing love and fellowship with God the Father. All have been conquered by the saving power of God through Christ and His kingdom. This passage shows us the compassion of the kingdom, the conquest of the kingdom, and now we're going to take more time and expand a little bit. We see the convictions of the kingdom, the convictions of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus, but it's not without opposition. We've already seen this theme of opposition. Luke has made it clear that though God is at work in Jesus, not all will be happy that, with that work. Not all will embrace that work. Not all will say, absolutely, look at what he's doing. No, even at the very beginning in, in chapter 4, uh, Satan himself comes and threatens to derail the saving work of God through Christ by tempting Jesus, specifically by tempting him to satisfy his immediate needs and escape the suffering of the cross. But in Jesus' mind, he knows that means not fulfilling the plan that my heavenly Father has laid out for me. It means not 
accomplishing the salvation that I have come to accomplish. Therefore, it's unthinkable for Jesus to entertain that temptation. And by confident faith in the truth of the word of Scripture and the goodness of God's will, even in suffering, Jesus tells Satan to take a hike. But the opposition doesn't stop there. It continues on through the hand of sinful men who also want to reject the plan of God in the kingdom that he is bringing about through Jesus the Messiah. And we see that kind of opposition even here. And from the way Jesus confronts the opposition that he sees in this synagogue, what we see is the convictions that lay at the heart of God's kingdom. In other words, those principles that the kingdom values and believes in. So if you are part of the kingdom, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you exist as we just sung with a majestic king above all kings and you enjoy his saving reign under your life, then these are the things that you should value. You should hold these as convictions about how to live your life. Okay, are you ready? First, following the example of Jesus, we should serve without prejudice. We should serve without prejudice. Notice the contrast between verses 13 and 14. Luke says that Jesus laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now to begin with, there's no law in Israel that says you cannot heal someone on the Sabbath. Just the opposite, in fact. Deeds of mercy and necessity were permitted on the Sabbath. But the part of the problem, part of the problem here is that when God spoke a law, these individuals, uh, mainly Pharisees, who wanted to obey the law. Again, you have to understand that they're not just like, ah, we hate God. No. In their mind, they love God. In their mind, they want to obey God. In their mind, they desire holiness for themselves and for Israel. The problem, though, was when God said, here's a law, don't break it, what they said was, well, you know what? We better make another law that will keep us far away from breaking that law lest we break it. Okay? So, so, so think about it like this. Imagine that the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. Okay? Now, for some of you, I know that is imaginative work. Right? But, but let's just say the speed limit is marked 70 miles an hour, right? So in your mind, I break the law and go faster than 70. I'm dishonoring the rulers and authorities that God has put in my life. I am sinning for the sake of convenience. Therefore, I don't want to go faster than 70. To make sure I don't go faster than 70, I'm going to impose on myself the speed limit of 65. I'll never drive over 65. That will ensure I never go over 70. And then maybe your children have in mind 65. So they say, well, 65 is good, but 55 is better. I mean, now we're getting really holy. Now, now we're staying really far away from sin. So 70 miles on 75, they're in the right lane with the cruise at 55. People are honking and going around, but they're thinking, I'm holy in the Lord. I'm holy in the Lord. I'm holy in the Lord. And somebody else hears about that and says, that, 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 that's great. But it, it goes, but then they build an, another fence. So they create another law and eventually you're down to 35 miles an hour. And now it gets to the point where if you're not with them doing 35 miles an hour, then you're going to hell. God's law and their law have become merged in their mind and they cannot separate the two because their laws are driven by the good desire of not breaking God's laws. But the problem is, is even deeper because what Jesus says is, even in the midst of their pursuit of holiness, what it reveals is hypocrisy in their life. He says, you are hypocrites. 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his or his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus says, here's the problem. You desire holiness, but you miss the point. You're hypocrites. You treat your animals better than this woman. Think about that. You treat your animals better than this woman. Not just any woman. She's not even a Gentile, Jesus says. She is a Jew like you, a daughter of Abraham. She is an heir according to the promise. But you don't permit her to be healed. These people are thinking themselves to be devout believers, but they are callous and indifferent to God's people. The result is they see someone that will give no benefit to them, someone that has no stature in society, someone that is not worth their time, and therefore they care nothing about ministering to that individual. They are, in the words of Ezekiel, false shepherds in Israel. Jesus is clear by implication here, and I think the rest of the Bible crystallizes the reality that true intimacy with God can never be divorced from compassionate concern for people. This is the reason why when the man answers back to Jesus, the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, Jesus is say yes. He says yes, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you're first loving God with all that you are. And, the, and beyond that, you're never loving God with all that you are unless you're loving your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that? As we prayed before we began, John says, Do not say you love the Father whom you have not seen, but hate your brother or sister. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. You can't walk around saying, well, I am, I am in such intimate terms with God. What about his people? Well, you know, I'm not really close. Then you're not intimate with God. You're not intimate with God. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying even to these people here, right? You, you think you're keeping the law. You think you're, you're trying to preserve the Sabbath day for God's name. But you're, you're not showing love and mercy and compassion to those that are right here next to you, those that are part of this synagogue, the people of God. You're far from God. You're far from God. And the temptation is still the same for us today in this particular way. It, it, it's very easy to say hi to people in the hallway, to, to maybe say, how was your week or how was school, and then really not care anything about them. Or worse, to only talk to those people that you like, to only talk to those people that you know well, to only talk to your family members, to only socialize with them. And walk right past all kinds of people that are in desperate physical or spiritual need and not care a wink about them. That's the great temptation for any church today. Is to be blind to the needs that are before us. Or to be like the Pharisees and start making pious excuses. Well, I'm too important because I have this ministry I have to take care of. Or I have this other season of life that I'm in that prevents me from, from doing these things. That there, there, there's lots of ways that we can display a sinful neglect of our responsibilities to one another as the people of God, but ultimately, I think what drives it is prejudice. It's prejudice. It is, it is very easy to disregard the needs of those that we don't know that we don't like, and that we have a hard time connecting with. And loved ones, Jesus calls us something better. Because we were unlovable, we were hard to like, 
and we didn't get along well with God, and yet Jesus poured out his life for us. How can, how can we do anything less for one another? And so specifically, I, I, I'll, just, I'll just, you know, if, if your toes haven't been stepped on, let, let me just grind the boot a little bit. I, I, I know that there are schedules, and so I just understand, I don't have any one person in mind here. But as your pastor, I, I sense a pervasive coldness that, it, that, that is slowly forming when it comes to stepping up to the plate and being involved in the ministries that specifically serve other people. We have become narrow-minded in our focus so that when we gather together, we're here for ourselves. We're here to be fed. We're here to do the things that we like to do, but we're missing the needs of those around. We miss the needs of visitors that come in. Why in the world there are sometimes gaps all through the seats when we know that makes it difficult for large families or guests to come in, I have no idea. We should be in tune to these things. Someone comes into a Sunday school class and it's a couple and there's only single seats and nobody moves. How can we be blind to that? But that's where we're at. And the question is, how do we, how do we get out of that? Well, we need to come to the conviction that we are to serve one another without prejudice. When we come to this place, it is not most important that we are comfortable. It is not most important that we are served. It is most important that we glorify and honor and demonstrate the compassion of God by serving and loving and looking out for one another. I'm pretty sure Paul said in Philippians 2 that, that we are to have the mind of Christ which says, I put the needs of God's people before my own. I count them as more significant. Is that the mindset with which we come together? It is, it is only, it is only by deep and abiding reflection, by grabbing onto the gospel of grace and seeing in that opening scene, we are like that woman crippled before God, unable to call out to him, unwilling to come. And yet he comes in and he pours out his love and mercifully reaches down into the muck of despair and sin and raises up and gives us healing life. It's only when we come to understand that that we truly will have hearts melted and oriented back out towards one another in love and mercy and compassion the way that we should. This is a mark of the kingdom. This is a conviction that we must hold. And if we don't, we are not living lives in keeping with God's kingdom. Second conviction is this, and that is we must speak of God's power. We must speak of God's power. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 16. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus says, of all the days in the world, a day of rest and reflection and worship to God, shouldn't she, shouldn't she experience God's power? And the conviction that drives where we live and how we serve, the belief that should motivate and encourage us is this. When the gospel is preached, when sinners hear the word of God, he will open their minds and draw them to himself. If we don't have that conviction, then, then we're useless for God in terms of ministry. Absolutely useless. Because this is the thing that should be driving God's kingdom. This is the thing that does drive God's kingdom because we need to understand I don't really intend to talk about this, but 
the, the church is not the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is his saving reign over the universe. The church is the evidence of his saving reign. It is, it is as it were, a, a visible outpost, an outgrowth of the kingdom of God. The local church is what happens when God's saving reign goes forward to the power of the gospel. But we can't bring about the kingdom. God brings about the kingdom. How? When we open our mouths to share the gospel. Then he draws people to himself. Jesus promised, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Therefore, the conviction that drives us is that we must speak about the power of God to save sinners, to redeem those in bondage to sin. And when we speak of that great power, it is unleashed upon the world. Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the gospel. It's like a caged lion. You just let it out of the cage. and It'll, it'll take care of itself. You open your mouth and you speak of God's wondrous power to save sinners. And that is what drives the kingdom. Third, though, the third conviction is that we should be seeking God's praise. We should be seeking God's praise. Notice what happens when the woman is healed. She glorified God. When Jesus blasts the hypocrites, when he takes them to the woodshed, the people rejoice in what he, the glorious things that he was doing. This is the great aim of our life. And we can, we can say this an abstract, abstract thing. We can quote books and famous pastors that talk about it. But we need to see this is part and parcel of good, faithful Bible reading. The glory of God is a dominant theme, especially in the kingdom. So what we have to remember is this. The kingdom is not about us. Kingdom's not about us. Kingdom's not about you. We receive the benefits of God's kingdom. We delight in the, the, being part of what God is doing, but the kingdom, by definition, is God's. It is His kingdom, and that means we are seeking to make Him known, to lift Him up, to honor Him, to glorify Him in what we say and in what we do. And we see the supreme example of Jesus Himself, who was embedded in all things, even unto death. Our culture is driven by comfort. Hopefully you see that. Just look at cars that have, I mean, ridiculous amounts of widgets and gadgets now, all driven to make our ride in this steel death trap at 80 miles an hour comfortable. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm sorry, I don't need my rear end warmed up while I'm driving. I wear pants for that, okay? Uh, but you just have everything in the world. We don't even have to walk out and put a key in the car anymore. We're, we're, we wake up in the morning and we say, oh, I'm late. Car's warming up. And then I'm in the shower and I'm out of there. Everything is driven by comfort and convenience. And those things are not inherently bad. But the problem is we often bring those into our life in the kingdom. It becomes about our physical, our emotional, our spiritual comfort rather than what is God doing and how can we glorify that? How can we magnify that? How can we get people to say, look at what God is doing. Look at what God is doing. Look at what God is doing. That, that's the great aim and desire of our life. The glorious praise of God. That, that, that is a conviction that is meant to guide the expansion of his kingdom. So we've seen that, that the kingdom is marked by compassion, conquest, convictions. Finally, we need to understand the certainty of the kingdom. The certainty of the kingdom. In the mind of that synagogue leader, Jesus was a violator of God's law rather than a bringer of God's kingdom. Jesus has rebuked him. He's put him to shame, but he doesn't stop. He wants to cement in this guy's mind and the minds of those that are there. He wants to explain what is happening before their eyes, even in, the, even in what's happened with this one healing. He wants them to see, look, you don't understand. This is the kingdom of God at work. <clears throat> so he heals this person and says, therefore, based on what you just saw, what is the kingdom of God like, Jesus says, verse 18, and to what shall I compare it? 
It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now think about the imagery that Jesus is using here, gardening and baking. If you put a seed in the ground, unless there's something wrong with that seed, you're going to get something far bigger, right? Say, well, how do you know that? Well, go walk down a city sidewalk sometime, right? Because they plant these nice trees, and you know what happens? Those trees produce seeds. Those seeds bury in the ground, and they get watered, and suddenly you've got cracks in the sidewalk. You've got sidewalks that were laid level, and now they're up at weird angles, And you say, how did that happen? It's the principle of the seed. If something small produces something big. Melinda and I, when we we were putting the grass into our house, you know, uh, her parents were very generous and bought us some trees to plant. But the lot right next to us was completely, uh, there was nothing there. It was just an empty lot. And there was this tiny little stupid looking tree that was there. And we thought, well, you know, it's free, right? So it's just an empty field. So we pull that thing out, we plant our back tree. It's the biggest tree we have now. Um, I mean, it's bigger than our house itself, and uh, it looks like a weed. It was something small, insignificant, and it grew to be something huge. That's the principle of the seed. The same is true with yeast, with the leaven. It, it spreads and expands and fills out the whole lump of, do- of dough, causing the bread to rise and not just be cake batter. But how does it start? Well, you, you don't take a cup of dough and a cup of leaven, and dump it on there, and no, 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 you, just all you need is a little pinch, just a little bit, and it does its work. It starts organically infusing the entire lump of dough, working its way through into, into the whole thing. And, and, and so Jesus' whole point is, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it's like. It starts small, and it grows large. This is one woman being healed on the Sabbath. But you understand, that, that small act is a sign that God is at work and he is going to accomplish something great in fulfillment of all the promises that he has made in the Old Testament. In fact, what we see is this promise of ongoing expansion. Ongoing expansion. Think about Jesus himself. Yeah, when when his birth is announced and when he's actually born, you've got visions and angels and miracles and a virgin birth. But what happens after those nine months are done? Nothing. I mean, the New Testament goes quiet. The only time he shows back up is when he's 12, and all he's doing is asking questions that blow people away. There's no miracles. You know, you read these false gospels where some kid makes fun of him, he turns him to stone, or, you know, kills a bird or something stupid. That, that, that's not in the Bible, okay? That doesn't happen. Didn't happen. Got nothing going on. And so when Jesus explodes on the scene, starting to preach and to do ministry, people are like, who in the world is this guy? I thought that was Joseph's kid. I thought that was the hick from Galilee. I mean, what, this guy has no formal training, no learning. What, what in the world? How is he teaching with authority? What started small and was seemingly unimpressive and insignificant is now grown to be something great. It's Christ himself, the Messiah, bringing about the kingdom. And over time, he reveals Not only the authority of God through his teaching, but the power of God through his miracles. We see the same thing in his people. It starts with 12 guys. None of them on paper are much to look at. I wouldn't have them as my core group starting a church. But these disciples are trained up by Jesus. They're appointed apostles and you have 120 more people. They're added to that following Jesus. 
He offers up his life on the cross. God raises from the dead and he says, get ready because I'm pouring out my spirit in fullness. And so 40 days later, the spirit comes and guess what? These 120 people are so filled with God's spirit, they explode out of this room where they're gathered together and pray and begin preaching. And 3,000 people get saved as a result. Started with 12, he went to 120, you got 3,000 more. All in the course of three years. All through Acts, see the gospel crossing, social, ethnic, religious boundaries. God is beginning to honor the promise, the vision of, of a people saved from every tribe, language, and nation. There is a certainty about the nature of the kingdom that though it starts small, it's going to grow big. And as it does, it will overcome enemies. It will overcome enemies. Think about how audacious this guy is to stand up and tell Jesus he's wrong in the synagogue. You're telling the lawgiver he's breaking the law. But in the face of that opposition, Jesus, in modern terms, says, you can't stop me. You know, I mean, you, 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 you think you're criticizing me, you think you're putting me in my place, but you can't stop me because I'm bringing an unstoppable kingdom powered by an unstoppable God. It might look small now. It's one lady getting healed. But what is going to be accomplished is going to rock the entirety of the world. And this is the way God has always worked. Right? <coughs> Think about the ancient religions of the world. Who today worships the gods of Rome, Egypt, or Babylon? I don't know anybody. I've never heard once say I'm going down on, on uh, you know, whenever, whatever day it would be, Monday or whatever, and we're going to the Zeus temple and offer a sacrifice. Never heard anybody say that. I've never heard anybody talk about Baal or Ra. Now, people may worship prosperity. They might worship power and influence. They might worship nature. But no one names them by those deities. And yet those were the most powerful nations of the world at one time. Judaism began in earnest as the slave people were being rescued from bondage in Egypt. The most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh, was defeated by an 80-year-old man who was afraid to speak in public. Why? Not because of anything in him. Because the power of God was at work. It was starting small and it was growing big so that the entire pantheon of Egypt, supposed deities, were no match for the living God of a bunch of long-dead patriarchs. One family started with 12 sons and their families. Exploded in Egypt. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. And Egypt gets scared. They say, well, this thing's growing out of control. We've got to do something about it. Let's put them in chains. Make them work for us. And what happens? God says, I don't think so. I made a promise that I'm going to keep it. And he undermines Egypt to the point that eventually it falls. Think about Christianity, birthed out of Judaism. Began as a very small, illegal religion in Rome. Grew to the point, undermined the entirety of civilization upon which Rome was built, and it fell. And no one worships their false gods anymore. So today, if you are part of God's kingdom because you've put your faith in Christ, then let me just say, be bold. Be bold. Don't be fearful. Don't cower in a corner. Don't say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. And No. The kingdom is here. It is growing. It is unstoppable. You are on the winning team. There is no doubt. When culture seems to be crumbling and crashing down, moral standards we once enjoyed are no longer there. You don't need to worry and fret and hold your hands and pick your lip and say, what's going to happen to the church? Christ has said he will build his church. And it's going to be built. It doesn't matter what the world is going to do. You understand that as much as we love this country, there will one day be no United States of America. 
There will be no more USA. It will not exist forever. God's kingdom will exist forever. And people will be a part of that kingdom. Therefore, the worst thing that we could do is assume that we have to change our message to somehow be relevant in modern times. Friends, Rome was far worse in its debauchery and sin than than where we are at in this world. I know it's hard to imagine that today, but it was far, far worse. And what does Paul do? He doesn't say, well, we got to get to the legislators. We got to get to this. We got to, we got, no, what does he say? He says, I got to go and preach where where, where Jesus has never been named. That's what I got to do. And what happens? Rome falls. Now, that wasn't the only reason Rome fell. It it, it consumed itself in its sin, but part of the undermining of the stability of that that paradigm was the fact that Christians loved each other so much, they they started freeing their slaves. And when a, when a quarter of your population of your country is slaves and are no longer slaves, something's not working anymore. And it wasn't because they wielded political might. It was because they preached the gospel and the kingdom grew and it will continue to grow to the ends of the earth. Many people today talk about the kingdom of God in books and articles and on television, but my fear is that their vision, their understanding, their idea of the kingdom is far from what Jesus says. So many talk about the kingdom in terms of moralism. Now, certainly, morality is part of the kingdom. But moralism is something different. Moralism says that morality itself will change our culture. And so in this country, it might be heard by people who say, the best thing we can do is get back to our religious roots in this country. The best thing we should do is fight to have Ten Commandments posted everywhere, to put prayer back in school, to pass laws that sound like Deuteronomy, and elect Christian officials in government. I hate to rain on your parade, but the last few Christians, so-called, that we've elected in the last hundred years haven't turned out to be that great, including the guy who's in office right now. Putting a Christian in the office of president is not the end all. It's not the way to save our country. I'm not saying that Christians cannot be effective in government. I'm not saying that that is just taken out of the equation. Say, ah, who cares about politics? I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that is not where our hope lies That is not how this world or this country is going to be changed. The way it's going to be changed is not through moralism, but through the kingdom of God. And that kingdom comes through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. That's what brings us into fellowship with God through the salvation that the Son secured. Trusting Him is what brings us into an everlasting kingdom and dislodges our citizenship from this kingdom that is passing away. If if you're worried about a culture war, that's how it's going to be won at the end, by the ever-expanding growth of God's kingdom through Christ. Father, we pray that we would believe that, that we would trust that, that we would delight in that. Your kingdom will not fail. It will not pass away. Because you have declared it will not. Because your very power is at work through the gospel. God, it might look small. It might look small in our lives. Father, we might be a young Christian and see very little fruit. But Father, you have promised that you will continue to cultivate that fruit. It might look small in this church. But God, you have promised that you will cultivate that fruit. Father, this is what the kingdom looks like as it advances, as the saving reign of God that we are called to pray for extends to all the nations, Father, that your people will be made evident among all the nations of the world. Father, we pray that we would would embrace this vision of your kingdom, that, Father, we would take joy in it, 
But Father, we would also allow ourselves to be convicted by it and to humbly seek your face for forgiveness and change where our little kingdoms are not matching up with your big kingdom. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name, for the honor of Christ's name among the nations. Amen.